Welcome, guys and gals, to the Man Talk Show. I'm Connor Beaton. This podcast brings together some of the best thought leaders, teachers, and extraordinary individuals to help teach and mentor you on life, love, and business. Joining me today is Mr. Paul Ollinger. And Paul is a comedian, he's a Facebook alum, and an author. He's a nationally touring stand up comedian, Ivy League MBA. Uh, and former Facebook sales leader. He performs at comedy clubs and corporate events all over North America. Forbes called his book, <laughs> You Should Totally Get an MBA, which is the name of his book, the funniest book about business school. So Paul is an interesting character, and I've wanted to have him on my show for a number of reasons. Uh, he was one of the first, I think it was 200, he was in the first uh, one of the first 200 hires at Facebook. And so he entered into the company as, uh, as I said before, as the Facebook sales leader. So he was there in the years where Facebook was starting to really blow up. And as he shares in the podcast, he started with the organization when they had about 20 million users. And by the time he left, four years later, they were just about to breach a billion, billion users. So he saw the growth of this company. And so, uh, you know, one of the things that I wanted to talk to Paul about was how has he seen, you know, Facebook evolve and grow? You know, has it, has it really, uh, you know, does it have the impact and, and, uh, the, the direction that he expected it to have? How did he see it unfold? What was it like being a part of the original company? You know, how did they change the industry, the marketing and advertising industry, which really is, the the big game of what they what they changed what was their success so some of those things but i i also wanted to talk to him about his journey because one of his interesting pieces is when we talk pretty heavily about transition here is that paul ended up after four years leaving facebook with no plan with no direction and he basically you know pieced out and said i have you know i've made incredible money here and and i think i'm good i'm done and so he left and he shares his struggle because after that he was directionless and you know rudderless and not really too sure what his next steps were and you know it's it, i think it's something that every single human being goes through and i think it's an interesting perspective because we we often think well you know when i've made the money then i'll be good when i've made all the money then i'll be happy and this isn't everyone's perspective but i think in the back of most people's minds there's this idea that if they just made you know, $20 million or $100 million that life would be perfect. And I think the interesting perspective here is that Paul really opens up and shares like, yeah, I made this money and then I had no idea what to do with myself. I didn't have a plan in place. And and that was really a, a challenging time. He had kids and a family and he was trying to sort it all out. And so he shares a little bit about that transition. And then we we talk about comedy and he shares some of the insight of, you know, what it's like to be a comedian and what goes into building, uh, you know, building sets and jokes and how truth plays a really important factor in, in designing comedy and how comedy is really about the art of storytelling. So this is a really uh, fantastic, I really enjoyed this interview with Paul and um, really cool getting to sit down with him and, and kind of hear his story and his journey. Uh, so before I bring him on, just a quick reminder, don't forget 
to share this episode with just one person. It goes a long way, whether they are interested in social media, whether they're interested in money or they're going through a transition or they just like comedy or they just like good conversation. Uh, share this podcast episode with someone. It goes a long way. And uh, for all the guys that are out there, we've got an upcoming men's weekend uh, on the West Coast and on the East Coast, one in uh, outside of Vancouver on the Sunshine Coast in August and one in September in upstate New York. Both of them are almost sold out. So if you have been thinking about joining us, uh, you definitely want to apply now because those will probably be the last men's weekends of 2019. Uh, and then we will be taking applications for 2020 as these are starting to fill up real quick. And we have guys from all over the world, men from you know Belgium and France and Australia and all over North America coming to join these weekends. So they are a ton of fun. They are a blast. They're incredibly transformative. We talk a lot about the shadow. We talk about sex and intimacy. We talk about how to repair and rebuild and, and really transform your intimate relationships with your partners that you're having the type of, of intimacy and sex and communication that you want. We talk about business and purpose. Uh, and, and we really dive into having the type of mindset that is required to succeed in all of these areas. So if you're interested in those things, definitely head on over to mantalks.com and check out the men's weekend. Uh, and without any further delay, please welcome Mr. Paul Ollinger. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's good to have you here in person. I always enjoy, I think the last one that I did, well, the last, the last podcast that I did in person, we talked about penises a lot. There was, yeah, there was a lot sure. of, there was As a lot guys of, do. there's a lot of ticked up. Well, the, the, the gentleman was on, his name was Brian Stacy, and he had gone through uh, testicular cancer. And so he had lost one of his testicles. Mm -hmm. And so we were talking a lot about men's health. And so there's a, there's like a, just an abundance of, of dick jokes. Um, so you're, you're a comedian. So I don't know how, like, I feel like this could be very serious or very funny. Like, I'm not too sure what to expect today, but we'll, we'll see where it goes. We'll cover both ends. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Okay. Both ends of the penis. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> good. Okay. We're, we're off to a good start. All right. So let's, let's begin with the question that I ask everyone, which is tell us a story about a defining moment in your life that made you who you are today. So, you know, I'm not sure if this made me who I am at a, uh, an organic level, but it certainly set me on a, uh, on a trajectory for my life and career that was, uh, unexpected. So it's 1996. I'm a first year student at the Tuck School of Business at Dartmouth where I had gone because I, and aspired to go because I wanted a better job to make more money. Mm. I went to business school because I wanted to have a more robust career in, financially speaking. And it was a talent show that I was asked to co-host because I wrote some smart ass articles for the student paper. And as co-host of the talent show, I just went up and started making fun of my friends who were in the crowd. And I had never told jokes in front of a crowd before. And the rush I felt when I had 300 people in an auditorium pissing their pants with laughter because I was making fun of my friends. And again, my friends, you know, not, not people I didn't like, but the, the emotion that I felt and the dopamine rush that I felt was unlike anything I'd ever experienced. Mm. To paraphrase a friend of mine who told me in one of our recent podcast interviews, what it was like the first time he did cocaine, <laughs> quote unquote, I knew this was going to be a problem. Yeah. <laughs> he walked out of a bathroom after doing a key, a couple of key bumps and he was like, this just changed my life. And, yeah. I, and I walked out of that room going, 
this isn't good for my career. Comedy yeah. is comedy is going to that dangerous. just changed the trajectory of my career and probably not for the best, uh, at least on a, from a short run perspective. Yeah, it's a dangerous substance. There you go. That's probably the, that's actually the exact reason why I have literally never touched cocaine. I, nor have I. Yeah, just I, I know because, I, would, I would like it too much. Yeah, yeah. It's like just from what people say about it, it's like, oh. Yeah, that that probably sounds appealing, and I don't think I should. I don't think I should touch that. Wait, it makes me feel attractive and the center of attention. Right? Gee, I wouldn't want that. Yeah, it's like would I? It's like the giant ego drug. It's like it's like a drug specifically designed to just jack up your ego. And right? makes yeah. women want to hang out with you. Gee, hmm. Yeah. <laughs> what could be dangerous about that? How is that possibly addictive? Yeah. Yeah. So good. You made an interesting distinction there. Uh, you said I, I was getting to make fun of my friends, not people that I didn't like. Yes. What's the distinction for you around telling jokes around people that you love versus people that you just like fundamentally dislike? Well, I, I don't I don't make fun of people I don't like. I not personally anyway. I mean, I might make fun of institutions that I don't like or, or political trends or societal behavior that I don't like. But as far as people that I don't like, I just don't talk about them. I, mm. I mean, I don't I. I think that, you know, the funniest jokes are when you, you sort of point out in a loving way, the foibles of those whom you love. And I think that probably comes from, I grew up in a, a household of six kids and the dinner table was, uh, was, was a zero sum Darwinistic, uh, experience, <laughs> both from a f available food perspective and from, uh, you know, airtime perspective. Yeah. And uh, the way you did it was to be more clever than than the next sibling. Got it. Um, so so that's probably some outgrowth of that. But I'm you, you know, and I think in comedy clubs too, there's this rule of don't punch down. Hmm. You, you're not going to win by making fun of people. You're you're only going to win by um, you know pointing out what's what's not obvious about the world. Interesting. And so, where did you fall on the on the roster of six children? Surprisingly, I'm one of the younger ones, thus the need for attention. Uh, I'm five out of six, and the youngest boy. Oh, three, boy. three boys, three girls. Yeah. Oh, Still very goodness. close today. Good. Yeah. Good. And and uh, and whereabouts did you grow up? Atlanta, Georgia. Atlanta, Georgia. Yeah. Tell as a as a uh, you know Midwestern Canadian, what was Atlanta, Georgia like to grow up in? Because I I actually visited Atlanta when I was 18 years old. Uh, my uncle was living Freak there. Freaknik? You were there for Freaknik? No, I don't okay. know what Freaknik is. To, never mind. It's okay. Just <laughs> a dumb joke. No, but like I actually, I remember it was like, a, it was a huge shock to the system because I hadn't really traveled outside of Canada. Mm -hmm. And I was 18, going to visit my uncle. And it was uh, November of 2001, right after okay. September 11th. Oh, yeah. And I remember getting there and you know, he like took me to a grocery store and there's, you know, uh, guards with like assault rifles at like one of the grocery stores. Mm. And I was like, what the hell is this? Yeah. And just the culture was very, very different. Right. Like, I don't, I don't know. We do if, like our guns down south. Yeah. I, I know. I, do. I don't, I don't have any. I noticed that. But so maybe just give me a quick context. What was that like growing up? Well, gr you know, growing up, it was a great place to grow up. Uh, it was, uh, Atlanta, I grew up in the, I'm 50 years old. So I grew up in the seventies and, or the late seventies and early eighties or all through the seventies and the eighties. But, you know, Atlanta was, a, was a boom town. It was this Southern town that 
that had kind of been held back by its own history, but there, but in the fifties, it made a decision that it really wanted to move forward. It had this slogan, uh, the, the city that's too busy to hate. Mm. And so there was, the focus was the building, the economic footprint of the city. And it was always an aspirational city. It, you know, when we got the Olympics, in I guess they were in 96 and I suppose we won them in 91 or 92. It was sort of this validation that the city had arrived on an international level. And it always felt like, you know, Atlanta was, was a striver. And I sort of identified with that, that, you know, I really wanted to make something of myself. And I think the city was as a whole trying to do that as well. You know, it's not known as a great sports city, although there is humongous loyalty to, to, to college football in the Southeast. Um, when the Braves were winning in the, you know, in the early nineties, there was tremendous amount of pride because it was a validation that the city mattered. I was always, uh, uh, Atlanta Falcons fan while Michael Vick was there before yeah. he got into all his shit with the dog fighting. Yes. Um, I, he was just the most vibrant quarterback to watch. Like it was just absolutely incredible to watch him. So I, I love hearing that the, that the city, uh, had that kind of culture, but I also love hearing your perspective of having living in a city where the the culture of the city sort of rubbed off on you and inspired you. Yeah, I, I suppose I just identified with it. You know, I grew up in the suburbs and and Atlanta was I, I went to Catholic school and I didn't know a lot of Southern people. The kids I went to school with were the sons and daughters of mid mid-level managers at IBM who had moved down from Chicago and New Jersey and wherever else because they were opening an office in Atlanta because it was a growing city. There were companies that needed their services and, mm -hmm. and the cost of living was cheap. And so, so there were a lot of transplants to, to Atlanta who stuck around because the city is a very livable, nice place, hotter than hell in the summertime. <laughs> but besides that, it's pretty darn nice. Yeah. Interesting. Well, yeah, it seems like people that live in Atlanta, like hot places, my uncle ended up moving to Dubai. Uh, after living in Atlanta, I was like, what do you do? Like he would complain about the heat in Atlanta and then the guy moves to Dubai. But it's a dry heat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a dry, it's like 50 degrees Celsius. You know, the, the roof of his car melted one time because he's got a soft Gosh. top Porsche. Anyway, okay, so you grow up in Atlanta. I do, uh, I did. You, you, <laughs> you, you move on. Uh, what happens What happens post this uh, college experience of doing comedy did you pursue that do you take your career in a different direction what, what were you studying that was well that was in business school so i was a okay. graduate school getting my mba and, and um i was studying i'd graduated from from college with no debt thank you dad and was was broke for a few years struggling to find my feet professionally and decided i'd go back and get my mba to really help me take it to the next level and didn't know what i wanted to do and so I got there and I start doing this comedy thing. And I'm like, this is the most fun I've ever had in my life. But I borrowed $80,000 to get this degree. And uh, that was in 1997 dollars, which would be like 140 today or something. So I had this dream, but I had this realistic situation financially, which was somehow I got to pay this back. Yeah. You know, while I, I, I sort of said, well, OK, if I could do anything. And I looked at my, my, my resume and I had this, this wonderful credential on there. Like I'm a, you know, I'm, I've got this MBA from Dartmouth. I can do anything that I put my mind to that I, you know, that, that I can commit to. And I wanted to get into the TV or film business because I thought, well, they'll, I'll be discovered in a marketing meeting someday. 
you know, that was really what was going on in the back of my head. But 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 they wouldn't even talk to me because I had no experience in, in the media business. So I thought, well, this Internet business is new. Nobody has any experience in the Internet business. So why don't I try to get into that? And indeed, I went and uh, opened the New York ad sales office for a company called Launch.com, which was an early music website like a Pandora or Spotify long before the bandwidth existed for the service to actually work. Yeah. But but that was my first step into the media business and the internet business. And I and I hooked up with a great set of people when I joined that company. Interesting. And so okay, so you, you go from that flash forward, how did your time at Facebook come about? So I worked at launch.com for four years. We went public. We crashed like everybody else in 2001. Yeah. Fortunately we got picked up at the bottom of the dot com bubble barrel uh, and, and we were bought by Yahoo with change that Jerry Yang found in his couch. And uh, but the good news was we got stock options. When we joined Yahoo and then Yahoo went on this run from 01 to 05, 06, where the stock grew like 10 or 20 X or something. And so I was able to pay off my student loans. After 2001, a friend of mine also looked at me and said, hey, you've always wanted to do this comedy thing. Life is short, as we've all just seen why don't you sign up for a comedy class? And I did. And that's when I started doing comedy on the side, doing open mics and bringers and stuff like that. Working at Yahoo, I happened to meet the people that ran the improv chain of comedy clubs. And the guy that ran it offered me the opportunity to host in his clubs and work with him on his digital strategy. And so I moved back to California and hosted in Irvine and Brea, California for two years. Got my feet wet, really learned a lot, opened for Dave Attell, Kevin Nealon, Colin Quinn, you name it, I opened for him. Wow. And, but after two years, it was going okay, but I really was, I was getting better, but I still sucked. <laughs> and I got engaged to my wife and I was like, well, am I going to spend the next 10 years milking this comedy thing, you know, living off of her hotel salary, or am I going to go back to work? Cause I knew my, I knew the opportunity cost of doing that. And so about that time, my phone rang. Friends of mine from Yahoo called and said, would you want to come join this small company called Facebook? Hmm. And that was in 2007. And I joined as about the 250th employee. Wow. Give us a, you know, as much as you can, a, a sort of behind the scenes look at mm. the at, at the life of Facebook, you know, in startup mode. Yeah, it was it was. um it was eye opening. It was, you know, it was the first experience I had being the old guy at the office because I joined when I was 38. And on my very first day, I asked this 23 year old engineer for his business card. And he was like, yeah, I could give you my business card or you could just friend me. Yeah, just that's follow me on Facebook, Kind of like bro. what we do here. And I was <laughs> like, oh, I'm old. What are you going to do with that business card? Put it on your on your paper Ferris wheel of a Rolodex right. between your cigar ashtray and your picture of President Eisenhower. Like what the, you... uh, the, the, you know, the whiskey sitting on your desk. Sonny, and... we're going to get some girls from the typing pool and go to lunch. It's like a, it's like a anchor man. So he's like, my office smells of rich mahogany and leather bound <laughs> books. <laughs> and, English, and I have English a Rolodex leather. for your business cards <laughs> to go on to. Yeah. So, so, I mean, there was, there were so many things that were different about Facebook and the way that Zuck saw the world was just so different that it was it was really disconcerting. It was uh, uh, disconcerting is the wrong word. It was like, wait a minute, this isn't how we do things. And we saw the market react to them too. Advertisers were like, no, we tell you what to do. You don't tell us what to do. And for the first, you know, for the four years I was there, 
I left when I started when Facebook had about 25 million monthly unique users and I left and they were at or approaching a billion. But it wasn't the Facebook that 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 we know it to be today. Yeah. So looking back, we we seem that it was a self-evident conclusion, certainty that it was going to turn into this behemoth that it has become. Yeah. But as you're proving the value to advertisers before you have great ad products, before your two billion users, before uh, they've realized that there's a better way to do marketing on online than just blasting, hor- you, you know, uh, experience interrupting ads at the user, they're incredulous that that what you're providing has value. Mm-hmm. And so it was, we were swimming upstream for a long time. And it wasn't until after the IPO when that didn't go as great as Facebook planned that that Zuck and co got serious about building tremendous ad products. And they indeed have done that, building the best ad products the world's ever seen. Mm-hmm. What was that like for you? Maybe just give the listeners some context into what role you entered into the company mm-hmm. as and you know, and what was what it was like in that environment because it does sound like they were really like a, a fish swimming upstream and you know sort of trying to create a different pathway without question you, you know if Facebook hadn't been growing at geometric audience if if their audience hadn't been growing at geometric rates they couldn't have done what they did but because marketers could see on the audience side that something was going on here everybody yeah. would meet they would meet with us anybody because they'd be like tell us what's going on right here. how, how what exactly this, are you doing this what does this mean to the world yeah what how does something grow at this rate um and you know zuck would say i'm trying to connect humankind and i was like I thought we were just building a better, less sexy MySpace, you know, and <laughs> and that's how that's that's on me. For well, that's not, how it looked from the outside well, perspective, right? Know, there I was MySpace, and then that was the language that we understood at the time. But he had a much bolder vision, and thus he built something way bolder. And by the way, you know, when he was twenty three, he could have made four hundred million dollars by selling, and or or way more, and he didn't because he had a much bigger vision. But so I joined as a salesperson. I, I was in the Los Angeles office selling to uh, whoever really kind of like it was still scrappy. And so we didn't have really defined swim lanes yet. But I sold to, to clients from the financial services industry to technology and some of the studios, uh, movie studios down there. And then I uh, was promoted to run the Southwest team. And then I was promoted to run the whole West Coast, which would be everything from Seattle to San Diego. And when you say like sell to those clients, I think maybe people that aren't in the marketing world or understand how the advertising uh, works, were you selling spots for those companies to advertise on Facebook or what was what was the interaction there? Well, the the concept of what you're doing as a publisher, a web publisher, Yahoo, Google, you, you know, they they make revenue by giving advertisers the opportunity to buy their ad products on their site. Mm. The ad products that we sold at Facebook back then were were these tiny little ads on the right hand side. Right. I remember and <laughs> some in the news feed and um, and then the concept of fans which was something that marketers couldn't get their head around because they didn't know what it was worth. Right. And um, so so we were struggling to find our feet from a product perspective while I was there. And, and honestly, that was a very, very frustrating uh, situation to go through. Every, and, I, and I think that looking back, I, I, got, I, I was very frustrated by it because I felt like I wasn't doing a good job. But nobody, uh, I, I felt like I wasn't selling enough 
but in but in retrospect, nobody from the senior levels down was like hammering us for not doing a better job. Yeah. They understood the product that we had, and but but it was a very frustrating thing when you're used to really doing high level deals and and trying to get sexy big deals done. Well, and it, it almost seems like your task is positioning an ROI to people that have never seen the 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 benefits of investing in something like this because it just hadn't been done before. You know, so like, how did you overcome that? Well, <laughs> well, I didn't. I mean, you know, I I almost thought like we should be paid based on the quality of the conversations we're having with marketers. We th- that we that we should be paid on the interest that we're driving. I mean, that's a that is a, a bit of a naive way to look at the role of a salesperson. In the end, you have to you have to deliver the revenue, but really we didn't have the product to be, to justify the revenue. And it wasn't until again, after the IPO and they've created these incredibly targeted, wonderfully uh, dynamic ads that, that they have today. Mm-hmm. That's the real, that was the potential and that was the value. But that's one of the reasons why working at a startup is, you know, if you pick the right one is so, is, is uh, so rewarding financially is because you don't have the smooth path to go down. You're going to be taking the rocky lane. And um, eventually that takes its toll on you if you're not, if you're really not very conscious of, of how, of, of why you're on that path. Yeah. It almost sounds like the people who require a, you know, a high, higher degree of order and structure Mm -hmm. and direction might struggle in that environment, not knowing exactly where, where things are going, because it, it does sound like to a degree, you're not only having to educate your client or your future potential customers on why they should invest in, in this like sort of new product. It's not like you're selling a vacuum and you're like, okay, you know what a vacuum does right. already. So I can yeah. position the benefit to you. We just have a newer version of that. You're like, you don't know what this is. So I'm having to explain the whole market set that yeah. you're that you're actually buying into and then convincing you to invest in it. Well, and, and, <laughs> and then it would change. Right. And then, right. And then I'd sell right. them one. Th- I'd tell I'd, I'd, I'd say, hey, this is how we're going to evaluate it. And then the product set would change. And and I'd be sitting there going like, <laughs> but I want to I want to I want to kind of like uh, I do want to emphasize the fact that like for as much grief as Facebook is getting today the the products that they've delivered are what people 10 years ago fantasized about marketers were like if only i could i could run my ad in front of only men who live in new york city right, right. you know like if only i could i could run it in front of men who live in new york city who like uh, who are into cycling and who haven't already joined you know my club or bought from me in the past well they can do that and that's the benefit of data what's the last time you saw a tampax ad online or on Facebook. Yeah, I don't even know. I mean, when when I first started it was like we had this concept at Yahoo called run of sight which meant we don't know who's going to see your ad. You could be running an ad for, you know, Viagra in front <clears throat> excuse me, in front of a 13-year-old girl. <laughs> you know, cuz that's the way the internet worked back then. Yeah. And and so we've already taken for granted the the progress that Facebook and and others, Google and others in the industry have created a far better experience online. And that's because they know us better. Not only do we take it for granted, we now are sort of feeling self-righteous about the use of our data. And it is a worthwhile concern to talk about. But yeah. we, we, we forget about the benefits that all of us 
as users and consumers actually get from it. Do you think that at some point, and this is more of a personal opinion than anything else, but do you think at some point the 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 intersection between convenience and privacy is going to blur to a degree where our uh, we're going to have to sacrifice a lot of our privacy for convenience because that seems to be what's happening. It's like the more convenience we have, the less privacy or the I, more privacy we have to give away. I think there's, I mean, hopefully there'll be more, I think people need to be more aware of how their data is being used. Yeah. And it's, it is scary. You know, I mean, if you give somebody your phone number, they know everything about you. And I'm not talking about Facebook. I'm not just Facebook. I'm talking about Walgreens, I mean, or it, whatever your local drugstore is, how pissed off do you get when you walk up there and you just want to buy some toothpaste and they're like, what's your phone number? It's like, go fuck yourself. Yeah. Can I say, sorry. I, yeah, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. No, yeah, go like, for it's it. like, I'm just like, why do I have to give you my phone number so that I can save 40 cents on aim? Yeah. You know, like what, wh why? Yeah. I mean, that feels like a violate. That is not a fair transaction in terms of an exchange of value. Yeah. You know, like. So I think in our everyday life at a certain point, consumers are going to be like, I'm no, I'm not doing this. And I'm, and if you're going to make me, and if you're going to make me do that, Walgreens, I'm just going to order everything from Amazon prime, which is happening already anyway. And by the way, for some reason I'm paying Amazon prime to know everything about me. So I don't know. Yeah. It's going to come down to the convenience of, you know, what really, what consumers really value and where they feel like there's a, um, a relationship that, that works for them and 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 what they want out of like their convenience so how did you just a few more questions and i, I, I want to rant more about yeah. the internet yeah come on <laughs> well i mean it's these a, damn cookies on my browser it's a great topic right it's like yeah i think i think a lot of people are undereducated about it but over concerned or, or or completely not concerned because they have no idea. Yeah. I think I think the average plus fifty, you know, plus fifty five individual, their understanding of how much their data and how much their information can be sort of bought and sold is like they just have no clue. They have no context for it because they just didn't grow up in that world. Like I, I remember my dad texting me when he bought a Mac and he couldn't figure out how to right click on something. Right. right and like, right. I got this huge uh, text message from him being like, how the fuck do I right click this stupid <laughs> piece of, you know, son of the devil computer. And it's like, That's right. it's like, oh, okay. And, and so I think a lot of people don't have a context for that, but well, I think that's the problem with the, the, the question of regulation you, you hear in these Senate hearings, these senators don't have a goddamn clue about how their phone works and they're supposed to legislate on the topic. Yeah. I mean, that's a problem. Yeah. That's a real problem. But I do, you know, I, I do think that there's got to be some way for the individual to understand how their data is being used, how they are being tracked by every single app they put on that phone, because the apps that are free are not free. Yeah. They're getting something from you. And that's generally your whereabouts, uh, your habits, your spending, whatever. Yeah. It's such an interesting thing. How, j in, just before we talk about, you know, your transition out of Facebook. Have and, I been funny yet, by the way? I think so. <laughs> I'm not I sure. Think, I think it's been a good mix. I've just been pissed off for some reason. <laughs> Look, pissed off is, is funny. <laughs> like, I think some, there are some exceptional comedians that do pissed off. It's no like doubt. angry comedy, no right? Doubt. It's just like disgruntled. Yeah. George Carlin is one of the, yeah. my, my heroes when it comes to comedy. And he's just an angry old white dude. Yeah, he's dead. Yeah. Yeah, it's which is but, unfortunate. Yeah, but he's yeah, one of the greats, one of the all-time greats. So, you see this evolution of Facebook. 
how has it evolved past? Like, has there been some surprises of, of uh, how it's evolved and, and how you thought it was going to unfold? You know, it's just so freaking big. Yeah. I mean, it's just so much bigger and more powerful and successful than I ever imagined. Yeah. And it's probably better that I didn't realize how much bigger it was going to get because I probably would have stuck around longer and wouldn't have found my way to doing what I'm really wanting to do. Yeah. Interesting. The, the like golden handcuffs of it. Yeah. And I've had golden hand. I mean, golden handcuffs are, a, a, uh, it's a good position to be in, yeah. but it's a, it's a frustrating thing to deal with in the short run, unless you're very conscious about what you're up to when you're wearing those golden handcuffs. You've really got to keep your eye mentally on why you're sticking around a place that you maybe aren't a hundred percent enthusiastic about in the short run. And I didn't have those at Facebook. I'm just saying, if I would have said, Hey, maybe I should stick around for another three years, try to cash in another 10 or whatever, you know, um, you know, I, I would have felt that and I would have resented it. And that's, you shouldn't, you know, you shouldn't be putting yourself through that. So what, what caused the departure? You're there for four years, you get to work, you know, you see this company just absolutely like ballooning and blowing up. Right. Why did you decide to leave? Well, they asked me to move up to Menlo Park uh, or Palo Alto at the time. And they said very nice things about my blue sky opportunities at the company. And, and my heart wasn't in it. I, I, you know, my wife was on bed rest with our second child. My mom was dying back in the Southeast and there were a lot of things going on. And I just didn't feel like uh, the frustration I was feeling that we've discussed prior. I just yeah. was like, I don't, I don't know that I want to continue doing the work that I've been doing here. And if I move, it's going to be a, a, a commitment of another in my head, it would be a commitment of another three years or something like that. And so uh, I kind of packed up and went back home to Atlanta and left the company very shortly thereafter. Yeah. And that was sort and and I don't, you know, I left without a plan, like I said, and I'm not, I'm not, I don't regret that I, that I left Facebook. I would have left eventually anyway. I, gre- I regret how I left. Hmm. I, leaving without a plan, leaving without saying, you know, thank you for the opportunity as, as enthusiastically and sincerely as I, as I should have done. And what was, what was the cause for that? Like, what was the, I just was kind of like, you know, I just, I, I let myself get frustrated about all the, the, the market challenges that we had and the lack of product and the lack of, you know, ironically, we weren't, we wouldn't Im- implement ad tracking back in 2011 mm-hmm. and, you know, all this stuff they're getting so much grief for today. We, they, they would not implement it out of concern for the audience, out of concern for the, for the privacy of the user. Yeah. And, um, they didn't have those problems solved back then. And my clients were like, we can't buy this. You don't, you have 20, in 2001 ad technology, how, you know, you're selling untraceable clicks and fans. We don't know what that is. And at a certain point I was just like, fuck this. I'm out. Yeah. Yeah. It's, Which it, by the way, isn't the right way to fail. <laughs> don't do it. <laughs> no, I think it's, it's a good point, right? Because a lot of people in their careers or in their job at some point, they, they feel that, all right, time to pull the parachute, like get me out of here. Yeah. Oh, and by the way, I also had a shitload of stock that was worth a lot of money. Yeah. And so I was like, I have enough money. Like I have more money than I ever imagined that I would have. Why am I sticking around? And when I left, I learned quickly that uh, money isn't the only reason you work. Yeah. You don't know that until you quit. T- tell me a little bit more about that. Cause I think a lot of people have a vision 
of whether they're entrepreneurs and they're like, I'm going to build this company up and I'm going to have an exit strategy in three years and sell and get out with millions of dollars and et cetera, et cetera. Or, you know, I'm going to get this career and I'm going to make all this money and I'm going to pull the ripcord and, and peace out. What's it like to be in a position where all of a sudden you see, okay, I have all these stocks. I have more money than I, than I could use right now. Right. And then and then pulling the ripcord. What's that? What's that experience like? Well, if you're if you're an entrepreneur thinking about selling your company, I would advise you to call ten other entrepreneurs or people who have gone through a big stock win like I did, and and talk to them about what happened when they left that company. Because yeah. I had a lot more identity tied up in work than I was ever conscious of. I had a lot more satisfaction tied up in work. I had a lot more friendships tied up in work. And when you bail and just say, fuck you, uh, and by the way, the reason they call it fuck you money isn't because when you have it, you can say it. It's because when you have it, you will say it. Mm. And you need to be very aware of that because when you get very arrogant, when you have a certain amount of money and you think, well, I don't need this job. And eventually your boss is going to ask you to do something you don't want to do. And, you know, th the right answer is rarely go screw yourself. Yeah. <laughs> so when you leave work, it's, you know, you, it's great for a few months, you know, you work out every day, you, you know, you, you take a couple of trips, you, you reunite with your friends, you read some books. And then, you know, a few months later, I came home from dropping my kids off at school, turned on my laptop and there's just nothing there. Yeah. There's nobody asking your, your, your opinion, asking you to give them advice. There's nobody there asking, you know, bitching about some problem uh, or asking for permission that they didn't ever need anyway. And you go, oh, okay, so, so what do I do now? Yeah. Who am I? What's my purpose? Why do I get out of bed every morning? And there's pros and cons to having 100% freedom or having 100% obligation. And, um, when you work, you probably don't have a hundred percent obligation. It, it, it's, you can certainly see it that way, but it's not the case when you're not working a hundred percent freedom is scarier than hell because then you have to make a choice about what you stand for and what you want to accomplish on your own. And no, you don't have a boss that's sitting there, you know, screaming at you about not getting your TPS reports done. Was that, was that an office? That was an office space. That was an office reference. So it's, so it's, so it's, you know, so that part's good, but then, <laughs> but then it's on you. Yeah. It is on you to determine who you're going to be. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think the, the interesting thing about what you're saying is I, I've seen so many guys go through this transition, whether they're trying to exit real estate and go find a new career or get out of the finance space or, you know, they're trying to sell their company and, and then there's this period in between that next step. And if they haven't built that next step, there's this huge identity crisis. And we see this, like I've seen this a lot with athletes. I've worked with pro athletes sure. that are totally. forced into retirement. All of a sudden they're like, holy fuck, what do I do with my existence you, now? You go from being the man to being like, I, I went back to work for a small software company and I couldn't get my calls returned for my friends at Facebook, people I hired, you know, and it, it's not because they weren't being rude. It's just, they, they got, they're, they're busy. Yeah. They've got to prioritize their time. Yeah. And all of a sudden you, you know, your change of status is, is alarming. It's disconcerting. Yeah. And you have to say, all right, well, what am I really trying to accomplish? And is this in line with it? Cause if it's in line with it, you'll take the indignities, you'll take the starting over, you'll take being the small person with no status because it's all about your mission. It's all about, living that next thing you're trying to create. 
you pull the ripcord, yep. you leave, there's this, you know, period of you kind of travel around, you, you know, drop the kids off at school and, you know, play, play that role. And, and then suddenly this, this reality starts to set in of like, holy shit, my life has so like so radically changed on a day-to-day basis. What was the impact on you like personally, mentally, emotionally, and, and how did it start to show up in your family? Because I would imagine that there's like a ripple effect to that. There is. And, you know, we had, there's no, no major blowouts or anything like that. But when the dynamic in your home has been that you're the one out in the fields hunting and, uh, you know, at the office all day or on business trips. And then all of a sudden you're around every day, you know, my <laughs> wife, I, I, I remember hearing, you know, things work just fine when you yeah. work here all the time. <laughs> She's like, I had my routine, and babe. <laughs> I, yeah. You know, like, you know, you're consulting on how I manage the, uh, dairy inventory in our, in the refrigerator, which by the way, it's first in first out. It's the only way to manage your dairy in your refrigerator. I mean, everybody knows that. FIFO, honey. Yeah, I mean, there, that's that that creates a new dynamic, and it's solvable, but it just changes things, and you can't try to start getting the things you're getting at work <laughs> at home, right? Like you can't just look for that same validation at home. Yeah, guys need. I mean, I think we all need work. To uh, we all need a mission. We all need purpose. We all need struggle to feel validation. Yeah, and. If you try to bring that struggle into, uh, you know, organizing the closet, it's going to be a bad weekend. Yeah. Well, and I, I think we, you know, we do largely look for that functionality, right? It's like, what's my function? Yeah. And I think that our, when we, when we're building a business, when we're building a career, when we have that passion project, it provides us with that mission to be able to go and accomplish and have something that, that is our doing, our doing out in the world. Yeah. And when that's taken away, you know, I think that that part of us is like off kilter. It's like, okay, I, I need, I, I want some functionality, right? I want some just, you know, more. And, and this is true for, for women or for women, for men. It's true for everyone is that we, that we crave that functionality in some degree, whether it's raising our kids or, you know, building a business or whatever that is. And so how did you start to rediscover that in the face of like, holy shit, and it, like this is <laughs> the rug has been, the purpose rug has been pulled from out underneath me. Well, I got, I got kicked in the face with it. Okay. And, you know, I, and so I thought, well, okay, I'm going to try and go do this comedy thing again. And I went out to a few open mics and I wrote a blog for a little bit and, and I went out to this one open mic and, uh, I bombed so bad that on the way home, I was like, I'm going to start looking for a job tomorrow morning. And, and so then I went back to work at that software company that I mentioned and I did that for a year and, and I was like, okay, this is not my authentic work to be done. And I think that's what happens as you get older and especially as you go from your mission being paying back those student loans, getting to zero, okay, then putting a certain amount of money in the bank that can drive you for a long time and you can burn through your thirties. You know, you put in the hours and, and put money in the bank and then you do it through, you know, some of your forties or whenever, however old you are. But when you get to that certain point where you're like, okay, I've got what is close to enough or sustainable, the work you're going to start looking for has to be work that validates who you are or work that is an expression of your core values. And my core values are making dick jokes for hash browns, apparently. <laughs> no, my, uh, so you have, you have to really say, and I think that's part of what was, I think that's part of why I was frustrated at Facebook is like, I'm grinding it out here and it doesn't feel like it's about, and it, it wasn't an expression of what I wanted to bring to the world. Yeah. And 
I don't care how great the snacks are, how much they pay you, how easy your sales process is, you're still going to find bullshit in your job unless you can see it through the lens of this is what I want to be doing. And I think when I was at Yahoo 20 years ago, I was like, I love being a part of this growing company. I'm able to establish myself as a man by becoming financially independent. But later in life, I was like, I need to be expressing what's inside of me. Mm. Tell me what it's like to bomb on stage as a comedian. Um, <laughs> it's not fun. But here's the thing, you know, like bombing is bombing is a necessary tool mm. for growth. Mm. And, and well, the beginning and this, I was just writing about this last week that, that because bombing is like the prescribed burn on the field that allows the new crops to come in. You know, it's like it, it, it's, it's, you have to go up and try new material. If you only are telling material, if you're only using material that, you know, works, you're not growing. Yeah. You're not going to have the next five minutes. You're not going to have the next half hour. I don't bomb enough. I need to bomb more. And like, you have to steer into the suck if you want to get better. It's like, so you're an athlete, you know, do you, do you get stronger by sitting on the couch? Yeah, definitely not. No, yeah. you know, like if you're a triathlete, you're going to, you're going to move to Denver and train at altitude. Yeah. You know, you're going to get bloody nipples in a chafed tank when you're, <laughs> when you're training for that triathlon, that's bombing. Yeah. You have to put yourself in uncomfortable situations in front of audiences who may not appreciate you because you, I learn something new every time I go on stage, yeah. even if it's, Hey, that works or that doesn't work. And if, and if you're learning every night, you're getting better. I think it's so interesting because I think for most people, when they look at going on stage or speaking in front of people or doing stand-up comedy. I was actually talking about this with a, with a client this morning. It's such a vulnerable, it's such a vulnerable thing, right? Like we are, we're, you're putting yourself out there. Uh, I'm, I'm only speaking from someone who like, I used to sing, right? So I, oh, was, yeah? I was an opera singer for quite a few years and I traveled around the world and I sang, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But I remember putting myself out in those in those ways and it's such a vulnerable thing and i remember not like i remember bombing on stage and when you're singing and and you're and you know it's not going right and you're off the beat and you like you're missing notes and you're yeah. flat or like yeah. you forget words it like the 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 thickness of the embarrassment that i felt inside i could only equate it to like not being able to get it up in sex you know of like <laughs> It's like, it's so... I have no idea what you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, 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 exactly. It's like, it's so embarrassed. It's so like deeply rooted in my core that it's just like, fuck, I yeah. can't. Like, you just never forget that feeling. But that feeling becomes the thing that either strengthens you to your point or it becomes the thing that that holds you back. And it's, and it's our ability to be resilient in that. You know, Brene Brown talks about having courage and vulnerability. You can't have one without the other. Right. So what's been your experience of, like how have you leveraged those moments of quote unquote bombing to build yourself up and to be a better comedian? Well, first of all, I, I want to admit that I was, I played Sky Masterson in the 1987 production of the St. Pius X high school players of guys and dolls. And so I had four songs and I can't sing. Yeah. I'm tone deaf. Yeah. And God knows why I was cast in that role. Two of them are duets, oh, which, geez. which are love songs. And I mean, 
it was murder. It was, it was, <laughs> I, mean, I, w- I was terrible and I knew I was terrible. Yeah. Like I could pull off the acting part of it more or less, but the singing was just, and I did that four or five nights in a row and I knew I sucked. And that's different. That's yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, like when you're, when you can't sing and everybody in the audience knows you can't sing, that's, and they're just like, oh it's man, no secret. you're like, it's, we're yeah, all in so, this together. So, so I agree. I, I mean, I, I feel that pain bombing on the other hand, giving it your best and it not going okay is like, it, I mean, the more you, the greatest comics in the world, they bomb and they're like, okay, so what? Yeah. I mean, like they see it as, as playing the role um, that it has to play, but you can't get up there. And the best comics are the ones who are the most vulnerable and who are sharing as much of themselves. Gary Shandling in his diaries, in, uh, as they discussed in the documentary that Judd Aptow made, his diaries were like, be more Gary, put more Gary out there. And for me to continue to improve, even last night, I had a pretty good show, but I, I mean, it was, it was real good. Um, but I didn't, I didn't put enough of myself out there. I need to continue to share more of what I'm afraid of, what, like what the doubts in my head are. There was even a a button on my shirt came off right when I walked in the club last night. And so I'm sitting there trying to pretend like my shirt, all my shirts buttoned all the way down. And I'm like, why didn't I, why didn't I acknowledge what was happening in the moment? Yeah. You know, like, and so as I was coming, like what, what I learned last night was, Hey, make use of that material that's a gift in the moment that that i ignored and pretend it wasn't there and that's not being present that's not being vulnerable and if i had done that i think i think the audience would have been like that was hilarious yeah totally totally i mean i i I had this guy on the show last year and he works for like the national research national research institute of humor Mm -hmm. and so they actually study what makes things funny Right. And that's all that the Institute does, which I didn't even know was a thing. What's and I'm the answer? still not too sure why it exists, but I yeah. was like, okay. Yeah. Um, but they broke down jokes into a few different categories. And I, I only remember one of them is that we, we take normal things and we talk about them in a way like normal everyday things. And we talk about them in a way where we point out the absurdities and, yeah. or we just talk about them in such a truthful way that that the 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 embarrassment of it or the you know the guilt or the like whatever the emotion is behind that sort of becomes normalized and it allows people to laugh about it and so that moment that you're totally. talking about is like yeah that could be an embarrassing moment where you're like on stage and your flies down or your you know your buttons undone and you're like oh shit can people see my my belly right now and and then pointing that out and bringing light to it yeah. is is like the comedy what what makes people really feel okay about it i heard the definition the perception of incongruity is what humor is mm. and i like that I, I think where where people say one thing or do another especially where i say one thing or do another or i think one thing and act differently that's where there's a lot of humor to mine what goes into like you talked about truth and and getting to the core of your truth and then being able to tell more of that mm-hmm. on stage. Mm-hmm. Why is that so important? What does that do for the audience in your, in your perspective? Man, I think it's, I think, I think truth is the number one benefit to my job, the, the liberty to say exactly what's on my mind and to not have to wear masks is the best part of being a comedian that and the tater tots. Um, <laughs> why, why do you have an obsession with tater tots? 
the Laughing Skull Lounge's tater tots are so good. Oh, okay. Uh, the there Vortex in Atlanta. No, uh, <laughs> you know, you get bar food and stuff like that. Uh, I actually had a pretty healthy salad at the West Side Comedy Club uh, last night. It was pretty sprinkled good. with tater tots. That's on top. like a shout out for the uh, for the um, Shea Guevara salad. No. <laughs> Cesar Chavez. Okay, I'm gonna go to hell for that. Um, I mean, truth is like that. That that's all we have to strive for. Yeah. I mean, that's that is the that is the ultimate goal for everything. I mean, human beings have have contrived religion and and stumbled upon philosophy in the search for truth. And and uh, I think that it is it is it is why people pay money to come and sit in front of people who will hopefully tell the truth and the ones that tell the truth the most honestly are the ones who are who who are who are the best george yeah. carlin is like you said bill burr is he's he is he is like passionately because he is willing to say things that other people won't say yeah do you feel like there's an attack on on being able to speak truth right now yeah i you know i i try not to you know i sometimes it's good feedback to to understand that certain things don't resonate like they used to yeah and that's okay you know i mean you know the, the, if 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 you're good you'll find your audience and 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 you know it's okay that hacky jokes making fun of somebody's wife aren't seen as intelligent or insightful that's okay because it's not interesting yeah. And so I'm always trying to remind myself about like, you know, make yourself the victim of the joke, make yourself, you know, make the way you, the bizarre way you approach the world one, make it evident and then make that the, the, the subject of the humor, not, not people who look different or act different or veer from the norm in some way. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. And, and so what would your style of comedy and humor be like if you were to just just, just like describe to somebody because i always think that like comedians are like different that maybe this is comedians singers whatever they they have like their own flavor right mm -hmm. like they it's like kind of like scotch they have their own genre that they're in sure they're aged differently so sure. what's what's your version of that i'm a dry memphis rub <laughs> uh smoky uh you know i go down nice with a pitcher of cold beer there you go you know it's i i'd like to think it's intelligent i'd like to think it's insightful and honest and uh it's for grown-ups it's for thinking people you know i don't yeah i'm I, I, there's not a lot of uh, room out there for to stand out if you're telling dick jokes all night. Yeah, yeah. And um, there's only so much you can do with the dick. Yeah, and I mean, I don't, you, you know, I don't, I don't walk a completely politically correct line. Um, I try to say what's really on my mind while being respectful uh, to, again, to to my fellow human beings. But I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna say what is, I'm gonna say what I believe is interesting and and isn't being said by other comics what's some of the stuff that is at the forefront of your mind right now and some of the stuff that you're that you're talking about well the data privacy thing is kind of interesting right now y you know and again that's that falls into the you know we say one we say one thing and then we act another way you know we care so much about our data but we give it away we cause... give it not only do you give it away but you endanger yourself every single day you know your battery runs low on your phone and you're in an Uber and you'll just take some stranger's USB cord and plug it into your phone. Yeah. You know, it's just some digital glory hole. You have no idea what's on the other side of that cord. Yeah. You know, you're worried about identity theft, but you spit into a tube and send ancestry.com your DNA. 
They could clone you for Christ's sake. Yeah, that that platform has always terrified me a little. Not terrified, but it's always been like, it seems like something shifty is going on. It's like they have your freaking DNA. I don't know that we can like what I I don't think that I don't think that their intent is malicious. No, uh, I don't think uh, so either. Malevolent. But, you know, think of the power that I mean, what would Hitler have done with that database? Yeah. I mean, there's there's some bad shit that that could be done with that. I mean, in 20 years from now, I mean, is your insurance 20 health next year? Is your insurance company going to use that data? I mean, yeah. you know, how is your insurance company going to use the data on your phone? I mean, like, you know, well, there's actually there's actually been talk about that of, of insurance companies using data from places like Ancestry.com to see your genetic di- like dispositions towards certain types of yeah. cancers or heart disease and then basing your your insurance rates off of that data and information. That's insane. And there's some, well, there's some benefit to it, but it's also, it's also some, I mean, there's some minority report kind of like, <laughs> oh, you don't have heart disease now, but you're going to have heart disease. Speaking of which, I talk about heart disease a little bit because I have it. Oh, really? Um, oh, yeah. What do, what do you talk about with the heart disease? Oh, just about, I, I, I use it as a, uh, as a, as a doorway to talk about uh, fast food and uh, make fun of Chick-fil-A basically. <laughs> Why Chick-fil-A specific? Because Chick-fil-A, because Chick-fil-A is delicious as it is, uh, is part of the, the uh, global scheme to make people who, who like people of their own gender to feel bad about themselves. I see. I see. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man, that sounds amazing. Uh, okay. Can you explain that one a little bit more before we go on? Well, the bit is basically that... Um, basically i'm saying that people in atlanta where i where i'm from they worship chick-fil-a they think it's phenomenal and 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 they mistake the fact that they they actually think chick-fil-a is good for you because the stores are clean and the employees are all christian but that's got nothing to do with it interesting you know they're like oh chick-fil-a it's good it's it's, we'll just get chick-fil-a for the kids it's like they sell shit yeah it's wendy's with a rosary okay it's, uh, <laughs> kfc that said its prayers right it's just i mean you know so that's the, that's kind of the bit i've I mean. never stepped foot in a chick-fil-a so i actually have no context this is all this it's, is like let me tell you something to me well it's freaking delicious okay they, their food is phenomenally tasty and it's garbage so th- that's that's the conundrum but people think because, and and they by the way they run their stores really well and their employees are friendly and efficient. And so it's this conundrum that you look at and you go like, well, they sell, they sell oil and they espouse, uh, they, they, you know, they, they, they are against, uh, uh, marriage equality, but their stores are clean and the kids are nice and the food's delicious. So what am I left with here? I feel like besides heart disease, I feel like the equivalent of that is like the people that sell like essential oils, you know, it's like, they're all really nice people. And it's like this massive pyramid scheme. It's a medicine show. Selling oils, selling scented oils, and then telling people that it's going to cure their cancer. Uh, And I always, I've always found that fascinating. It's like, well, I don't know how much the research supports that, but it does smell incredible. Yeah. And it's very soothing to my nervous system. And so I'm on board with it, you know, but anyway, um, we have to wrap up here soon uh, for time. This has been absolutely phenomenal. Can you, you, you started a podcast. Yes. Uh, Crazy Money. Crazy Money. Okay. Tell me a little bit about why you started this. Well, I started, I've, I've been writing a book for a few years uh, about my experience dealing with success. Um, 
because there's all these unexpected things that happen, like we talked about, like, you know, you, you, you think you're going to, uh, uh, it's going to be a party every day and you walk and you just get smacked in the face with the reality that you have to choose who you are. And there's all these truths about money that, by the way, I said, I had all the money I'd ever dreamed of. Well, it turns out there's always somebody with more and, yeah. and your, our wants as human beings never stop growing. We are want machines. We are on a hedonic treadmill and we get used to every level of luxury and affluence. So no matter how much you make, your, your brain is going to want more. And that's a lesson to be learned. It's also so, so the number we need to aspire to is enough and things like that. So I write about things like that. And so as I started doing this, I was like, well, I want to talk to other people who've had different kinds of experiences with money. Some, I want to talk to people who have won money. I want to talk to people who have lost money. I want to talk to people who struggle to pay their bills as adults. And uh, so I started Crazy Money. We just had episode number 20. I had Adam Carolla uh, as my guest. I've had uh, several PhDs. I've had a woman who is a friend of mine who is a Vietnamese refugee. She's a, a normal, everyday mom, uh, affluent mom out in San Diego. And yet when she was six, her father wrapped her in a fishing net, smuggled her out of Vietnam. She lived in a refugee camp for two years, moved to the United States with nothing, picked apples and cherries and whatever they had to pick. So I just think that's really interesting that in a generation, she's gone from absolutely nothing to being this member of the upper middle class who who functions like, you know, every other normal family. Yeah. So I want to tell those, I want to tell those money stories. I interviewed my 90, 92 year old father <laughs> and we had this retroactive, uh, discussion about what it was like in our household growing up. And I remember it being very stressful financially. And here's my dad who was like, I just always figured the Lord would provide. And I'm like, you're kid, you're, <laughs> you were stressed out. You were always stressed out about money. And so was I. And that's why I wanted to make some because I yeah. figured, I figured when I made money, I wouldn't stress about money. And that is a huge, huge myth. Yeah. That's great, man. That's great. Well, uh, I am excited to hear and see what else you you do here in the future. Uh, what's next? What's one thing that that people can can check out that you have coming up? I've got a, a comedy EP on iTunes, Spotify, and iHeartRadio. It's called Alive on the Upper West Side. Kind of like a, an homage to an old Kiss record, you know? Cool. Uh, Alive on the Upper West Side, uh, Paul Ollinger with two L's. And uh, it's a show I did at, at uh, the West Side Comedy Club in December. Love it. Love it. Well, we'll have, uh, we'll have links to all that in the show notes. I'm going to check that out myself because I want to go and, uh, and see some of your stuff. So wonderful. Thank you so much for joining me on the show, Paul. I appreciate you having me. Yeah. And for everyone that's out there, uh, definitely go follow along with Paul's journey. Check out his podcast, Crazy Money. Uh, and, and check out some of his comedy because he's got some really, really incredible stuff out there. Uh, and don't forget to leave us a rating and review if you are interested. Uh, please share this with one person. It goes a long way into getting us into the ears and on the phones of other people. Uh, and I'm sure that there are some people that you know that would love to listen to this conversation. So share it on with them. Uh, don't forget to leave us a rating review on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, you name it. We're on all the things now, all the things and such. Uh, and uh, this is Connor Beaton signing off. Join me next week for another inspiring conversation with another inspiring individual. 